0: World by Justine Gardner. Fate. The fortune teller is trying to foresee something that is really quite unforeseeable. Sophie had been keeping her eye on the mailbox while she read about Democritus. But just in case, she decided nevertheless to take a stroll down to the garden gate. When she opened the front door, she saw a small envelope on the front step. And sure enough, it was addressed to Sophie Munson. So he had tricked her. Today, of all days, when she had kept such a careful watch on the mailbox, the mysterious man had sneaked up on the uh, up to the house from a different angle and just laid the letter on the step before making off into the woods again. Drat! How did he know that Sophie was watching the mailbox today? Had he seen her at the window? Anyway, she was glad to find the letter before her mother arrived. Sophie went to her room and opened the letter. The white envelope was a bit wet around the edges and had two little holes in it. Why was that? It had not rained for several days. The little note inside read, Do you believe in fate? Is sickness the punishment of the gods? What forces govern the course of history? Did she believe in fate? She was not at all sure, but she knew a lot of people did. There was a girl in her class who read horoscopes magazines. But if they believed in astrology, they probably believed in fate as well, because astrologers claimed that the position of the stars influenced people's lives on Earth. If you believe that a black cat crossing your path meant bad luck, well, then you believe in, believed in fate, don't didn't you? As she thought about it, several more examples of fatalism occurred to her. Why do so many people knock on wood, for example? And why was Friday the 13th an unlucky day? Sophie had heard that lots of hotels had no room number 13. It had to be because so many people were superstitious. Superstitious. What a strange word. If you believed in Christianity or Islam, it was called faith. But if you believed in astrology or Friday the 13th, it was superstition. Who had the right to call other people's belief superstition? Sophie was sure of one thing, though. Democritus had not believed in fate. He was a materialist. He had only believed in atoms and empty space. Sophie tried to think about the questions, other questions on the note. Is sickness the punishment of the gods? Surely nobody believed that nowadays, but it occurred to her that many people thought it was help to pray for recovery. So at any rate, they must believe that God had some power over people's health. The last question was harder to answer. Sophie had never given much thought to what governed the course of history. It had to be people, surely. If it was God or fate, people had no free will. The idea of free will made Sophie think of something else. Why should she put up with this mysterious philosopher playing cat and mouse with her? Why couldn't she write a letter to him? He, or she will quite probably put another big envelope in the mailbox during the night or sometime tomorrow morning. She would see to it that there was a letter ready for this person. Sophie began right away. It was difficult to write to someone she had never seen. She didn't even know if it was a man or a woman, or if it was a he or she was young or old. For that matter, the mysterious philosopher could even be someone she already knew. She wrote, most respected philosopher, your generous correspondence course in philosophy is greatly appreciated by us here, but it bothers us to not know who you are. We therefore request you to use your full name. In return, we would like to extend our hospitality Hospitality should you care to come and have coffee with us, but preferably when my mother is at home. She is at work from 7.30 a.m. to 5.00 p.m. every day from Monday to Friday. I am at school during these days, but I am always home by 2.15 p.m., except on Thursdays. I am also very good at making coffee. Thanking you in advance, I remain your attentive student, Sophia Munson, aged 14. At the bottom of the page, she wrote, RSVP. Sophie felt that the letter had turned out much too formal. But it was hard to know which words to choose when writing to a person without a face. She put the letter in a pink envelope and addressed it to the philosopher. The problem was where to put it so her mother didn't find it. She would have to wait for her to get home before putting it in the mailbox. And she would also have to remember to look in the mailbox early in the next morning before the newspaper arrived. If no new letter came for her this evening or during the night, she would have to take the pink envelope in again. Why did it all have to be so complicated? That evening, Sophie went up to her room early, even though it was Friday. Her mother tried to tempt her with pizza and a thriller on TV, but Sophie said she was tired and wanted to go to bed and read. While her mother sat watching TV, she sneaked out to the mailbox with the letter. Her mother was clearly worried. She started speaking to Sophie in a different tone since the business with the white rabbit and the top hat. Sophie hated to be a worry to her mother, but she just had to go upstairs and keep an eye on the mailbox. When her, mail, when her mother came up at about 11 o'clock, Sophie was sitting at the window, staring down at the road. You're not still sitting there staring at the mailbox, she said. I can look at whatever I like. I really think you must be in love, Sophie. But if he is going to bring you another letter, he certainly won't come in the middle of the night. Yuck. Sophie loathed all that soppy talk about love, but she had to let her mother go on believing that it was true. "'Is he the one who told you about the rabbit and the top hat?' her mother asked. Sophie nodded. he "'He doesn't do drugs, does he?' Now Sophie felt really sorry for her mother.' She couldn't go on letting her worry this way, although it was completely nutty of her to think that just because someone had a slightly bizarre idea, he must be on something. Grown-ups were really idiotic sometimes. She said, Mom, I promise you once and for all, I'll never do any of that stuff. And he doesn't either. But he's very interested in philosophy. Is he older than you? Sophie shook her head. The same age? Sophie nodded. Well, I'm sure he's very sweet, darling. Now I think you should try to get some sleep. But Sophie stayed sitting by the window for what seemed like hours. Alas, she could hardly keep her eyes open. It was one o'clock. She was just about to go to bed when she suddenly caught sight of the shadow emerging from the woods. Although it was dark outside, she could make out the shape of a human figure. It was a man, and Sophie thought he looked quite old. He was certainly not her age. He was wearing a barrette of some kind. She could have sworn he glanced up at the house, but Sophie's light was not on. The man went straight up to the mailbox and dropped a big envelope in it. As he let go of it, he caught sight of Sophie's letter. He reached down into the mailbox and fished it up. The next minute, he was walking swiftly towards the woods. He hurried down the woodland path and was gone. Sophie felt her heart pounding. Her first instinct was to run after him in his pajamas, but she didn't dare run after a stranger in the middle of the night. But she did have to go out and fetch the envelope. After a minute or two, she crept down the stairs, opened the front door quietly, and ran to the mailbox. In a flash, she was back in her room with the envelope in her hand. She sat on her bed, oh, holding her breath. After a few minutes had passed, and all was still quiet in the house, she opened the letter and began to read. She knew this would not be an answer to her own letter. That could not arrive until to- tomorrow fate. Good morning once again, my dear Sophie. In case you should get any ideas, let me make it quite clear that you must never attempt to check up on me. One day we will meet, but I shall be the one to decide when and where. And that's final. You're not going to disobey me, are you? But to return to the Philosopher's, We have seen how they have tried to find natural explanations for the transformations in nature. Previously, these things had been explained through myths. Old superstitions had to be cleared away in some areas as well. We see them at work in matters of sickness and health, as well as political events. In both of these areas, the Greeks were great believers in fatalism. Fatalism is the belief that whatever happens is predestined. We find this belief all over the world, not only throughout history, but in our own day as well. Here in the Nordic countries, we find a strong belief in Laganadan, or fate, in the old Icelandic sagas of the Edda. We also find the belief both in ancient Greece and other parts of the world where people could learn their fate from some form of oracle. In other words, the fate of a person or a country could be foreseen in various ways. There are still a lot of people who believe that they can tell your fortune in the cards, read your palm, or predict your future in the stars. A special Norwegian version of this is telling your fortune in coffee cups. When a coffee cup is empty, there's usually some traces of coffee grounds left. These might be a certain image or pattern, at least if we give our imagination a free rein. If the grounds resemble a car, it might mean that the person drank from the cup is going for a long drive. Thus, the fortune teller is trying to foresee something that is really quite unforeseeable. This characteristic of all forms of foreseeing. And precisely because what they see is so vague, it is hard to repudiate the fortune teller's claims. When we gaze up at the stars, we see a veritable chaos of twinkling dots. Nevertheless, throughout the late ages, There have always been people who believed that the stars could tell us something about our life on Earth. Even today, there are political leaders who seek the advice of astrologers before they make any important decisions. The Oracle at Delphi The ancient Greeks believed that they could consult the famous Oracle at Delphi about their fate. Apollo, the god of the oracle, spoke through his priestess Pythia, who sat on a stool over a fissure in the earth, from which arose a hypnotic vapor that put Pythia in a trance. This enabled her to be Apollo's mouthpiece. When people came to Delphi, they had to present their question to the priest of the oracle, who passed it on to Pythia. Her answer would be so obscure or ambiguous that the Prius would have to interpret it. In that way, the people got the benefit of Apollo's wisdom, believing that he knew everything, even about the future. There were many heads of state who dared not to go to war or take other decisive steps until they had consulted the oracle at Delphi. The priests of Apollo thus functioned more or less as diplomats or advisors. They were experts in an knowledge of the people and the country. Over the entrance to the Temple of Delphi was the famous inscription, Know thyself! It reminded visitors that man must never believe himself to be more than mortal, and that no man can escape his destiny. The Greeks had many stories of people whose destiny catches up with them. As time went by, a number of plays... Tragedies were written about these tragic people. The most famous one is the tragedy of King Oedipus. History and Medicine But fate did not just govern the lives of individuals. The Greeks believed that even world history was governed by fate, and that the fortunes of war could be swayed by the intervention of the gods. Today, there are still many people who believe that God or some other mysterious power is steering the course of history. But at the same time as the Greek philosophers were trying to find natural explanations for the processes of nature, the first historians were beginning to search for natural explanations for the course of history. When a country lost a war, the vengeance of the gods was no longer an acceptable explanation to them. The best-known Greek historians were Herodotus, fourteen forty, 40 four hundred eighty-five through four hundred twenty-four B.C., and Thucydides, four hundred thirty through four hundred B.C. The Greeks believed that sickness could be ascribed to divine intervention. On the other hand, the gods can make people well again if they made the appropriate sacrifices. This idea was in no way unique to the Greeks. Before the development of modern medicine, the most widely accepted view was that sickness was due to supernatural causes. The word influenza actually means a malign influence from the stars. Even today, there are a lot of people who believe that some diseases, AIDS. S, for example, are God's punishment. Many also believe that sick people can be cured with the help of a supernatural. Concurrently with the new directions in Greek philosophy, a Greek medical science arose which tried to find the natural explanations for sickness and health. The founder of Greek medicine is said to have been Hippocrates, who was born on the island of Kos around 460 B.C. The most essential safeguards against sickness, according to the Hippocratic medicine tradition, were moderation and a healthy lifestyle. Health is a natural condition. When sickness occurs, it is a sign that nature has gone off course because of physical or mental imbalance. The road to health for everyone is through moderation, harmony, and sound mind in a sound body. There is a lot to talk about today. About medical ethics, which is another way of saying that a doctor must practice medicine according to certain ethical rules. For instance, a doctor may not give healthy people a prescription for narcotics. A doctor must also maintain professional secrecy, which means that he is not allowed to reveal anything a patient has told him about his illness. These ideas go back to Hippocrates he required his pupils to take the following oath. I will follow that system or regimen which, according to my ability or judgment, I consider to be the benefit of my patients, and abstain from whichever is deleterious and mischievous. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone, if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. And in like manner I will not give to a woman the means to produce an aberration. Whenever I go into a house, I will go for the benefit of the sick, and will abstain from every voluntary act of mischief and corruption, and further, from the seduction of females or males, whether free men or slaves. Whether in connection with my professional practice, I see or hear which, ought not to be spoken abroad, I will keep secret. So long as I continue to carry out this oath unviolated may it be granted to en- me to enjoy life in the practice of art, respected by all men in all times, but should I violate this oath, may the reserve be my lot. Sophie woke with a start on Saturday morning. Was it a dream, or had she really seen the philosopher? She fell under the bed with one hand. Yes, there lay the letter that had come during the night. It wasn't only a dream. She had definitely seen the philosopher. And what's more, with her own eyes, she had seen him take her letter. She crouched down on the floor and pulled out all the typewritten pages from under the bed. But what was that? Right by the wall, there was something red. A scarf, perhaps? Sophie edged herself in under the bed and pulled out a red silk scarf. It wasn't hers, that was for sure. She examined it more closely and gasped when she saw Hilda written in ink along the seam. Hilda! But who was Hilda? And how could their paths be crossing like this?